You're listening to Cross Section, the podcast of the Summit View Church of Christ. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord Welcome back to Cross Section. I'm Kevin Jensen. This is our second installment in the series Making Sense of Revelation. And today's topic is why is the book of Revelation written to the seven churches of Asia? So when you first begin to read Revelation, one of the things you notice is that uh, it's addressed to these seven churches. So, for example, in chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, John, that's the writer, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, we're not talking about the continent of Asia here. We're talking about the Roman province of Asia. So a, uh, a state, a province in the ancient Roman Empire. And the province of Asia was uh, a province in the western edge of what is now Turkey, uh, or the landmass that we now call Asia Minor. It's right on the, the western uh, edge there, right along the coast, uh, and then a little bit inland as well. And then also chapter 1, verse 11, uh, mentions uh, that Jesus says to John, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so those are the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, there were more churches than that in the province of Asia. We have mentions of those in some of Paul's letters and in the book of Acts. Uh, But these are the seven to whom Revelation is addressed. And so Jesus tells John, write on a scroll what you see and send it to them. Uh, What John sees will be a vision, and he records that vision for us in the book of Revelation. And in fact, that that, uh, vision begins in uh, chapter 1 and verse 10, just before this list of the seven churches. Then in chapter 2 and chapter 3, we have seven distinct messages from Jesus, one to each of these seven churches in the province of Asia. Now John at this time was on the island of Patmos. He tells us that in chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Then he hears Jesus' voice and he hears Jesus say uh, to write on a scroll and send what he sees to uh, these seven churches. Patmos was about 50 miles, just very roughly 50 miles from uh, where ancient Ephesus was. Ephesus, a major city uh, on the west coast of the province of Asia. And now it's just uh, just remains. The city's not there anymore. But you can go and visit the remains there uh, on the western edge of Turkey. And these seven churches, beginning with Ephesus, were arranged in a circuit along major highways that went through that province. So if you sail from the island of Patmos to the northeast, about 50 miles, wiggle around the coast a little bit, you come to Ephesus. And then from Ephesus, you could travel north along the highway up to Smyrna, uh, still on the coast of the province of Asia, now the nation of Turkey. And then from there, you go straight north inland as the coast moves out to the northwest a little. You go straight north up to Pergamum. And then from there, you cut to the southeast and basically go in a straight line to the next four cities in succession. Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so 
these uh, cities are listed in this order in Revelation, uh, in which also someone carrying uh, the scroll of Revelation would perhaps travel to go visit all these seven cities. It would make sense to start at Ephesus, head north to uh, Smyrna, and then uh, further north to Pergamum, and then cut southeast to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, Ephesus, we already know from the New Testament, uh, it is the uh, city where the church was to which Paul's letter to the Ephesians is addressed. And Laodicea is mentioned in uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians, uh, written to the church in the city of Colossae, which was located very close to Laodicea. So we know about a couple of these uh, cities and churches uh, from the New Testament already. Now, why is Revelation written to these seven churches? Well, it's hard to say exactly for sure. One possibility is uh, a connection to John, the writer. So the writer says in uh, chapter 1 and verse 4 and again in verse 9 uh, and also right at the very beginning in verse 1 that his name is John, but he doesn't say which John he is. Uh, we know of two in the New Testament. We have the Apostle John and then we have a man named John Mark who we believe is the author of the Gospel of Mark. Uh we don't know which one of these it is. A lot of church tradition suggests that this is the Apostle John. It could also be another John who we don't know of at all, uh, a prophet in the early church. But, uh, but if it's the Apostle John, he would be very old. He'd be maybe coming close to 100 years old at this time. This is written toward the end of the first century. And assuming he's roughly the same age as Jesus, uh, with whom he uh, served and learned from, uh, he'd be close to 100 probably. The stories from the early church say that the Apostle John did live to be very old and that he spent many of his later years in Ephesus. So if the Apostle John is the author of Revelation, then maybe God gave him this vision that he records on the scroll so that John could then communicate it to the church in Ephesus and other churches that he perhaps knew and had worked with in that region. So that's a possibility. Uh, a, uh, a real strong possibility has to do with the situation of these uh, churches in these seven cities. One distinctive trait of these cities where these seven churches were located uh, is that they were in a part of the Roman Empire where worship of the Roman emperor and the Roman state was especially strong, often expected. Uh, it, it was uh, common for kings at that time to be worshipped as divine, maybe as uh, people uh, who in whom the gods dwelled, sort of making them semi-divine themselves uh, as, as kings. Um, sometimes the spirits of uh, kings who had passed away would be pronounced divine. Sometimes they were considered to be gods or nearly gods already uh, in human form as they were still alive and ruling. Of course, this was a way to show your loyalty to the king or to the state, to the emperor. Uh, in this part of the Roman Empire, that impulse toward emperor worship was especially strong. Uh, we call uh, the worship of the emperor the emperor cult. So it was an actual religion. Hard for us to understand this in the United States because we just have nothing at all like this. I mean, we we, we critique our presidents, we can critique our senators, our representatives, our governors, our mayors. I mean, we 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 uh, we don't hold them in uh, reverence like ancient peoples held their kings sometimes. Uh, but they actually had a religion 
dedicated to the people's worship of the Roman Emperor at this time, toward the end of the first century AD. And not only of the Emperor, but also sometimes of the Senate, of the state, the nation as a whole, sometimes also the Emperor's relatives, maybe his, his wife or his mother, someone like that. And we know about this from ancient writings and archaeological findings. It wouldn't be hard uh, for you, if you like, to go on uh, Google or another search engine and find information about the, Roman, the cult of the Roman Emperor, uh, the Roman Emperor cult. So one of the things that they did as part of this cult was uh, they sometimes built temples dedicated to the worship of a certain emperor. For example... We know that a temple to the Emperor Augustus uh, was built around 29 BC in the city of Pergamum, which is one of our seven churches. Another temple to the Emperor Tiberius and to the Roman Senate was built in another one of those seven cities, in Smyrna, in the year AD 26. And then another temple was built in the mid-80s AD in Ephesus, one of our seven cities, and that one was dedicated to the current Emperor Domitian, who's also, we think, the Emperor when Revelation is written in the 90s, and dedicated also to his predecessors Vespasian and Titus. And so there were three temples that we know of among these seven cities dedicated to the worship of the Roman Emperor. And these temples were no small deal. They, they weren't just like little shrines off to the side. They, they were big. They were placed in uh, positions where they would be visible uh, across much of the city. They were placed in positions of honor, and they were uh, very, very expensive, I'm sure. Uh, these temples were marks of prestige for, this, for these cities, just like the temple of God in Jerusalem was a mark of prestige and honor for Jerusalem. You couldn't just build a temple to the emperor. You had to get special permission, and that could take years. Uh, Often these cities competed for permission to build a temple to the emperor. And besides the temples themselves, there would be sacrifices to the emperors. There would be hymns sung to them. There would be public banquets in their honor. They would have parades or festivals in the city in honor of the emperor. They would have celebrations of the emperor's birthdays uh, and so on. So this was a big deal. Uh, So you can imagine that uh, this was, you know, this emperor cult was not something you could hide from in one of these uh, cities that had a temple to the emperor and perhaps not in any city in that region. It was just a, a common part of everyday life and of civic life in that region. So if these sorts of uh, structures and events were such a big part of the culture in this region, and especially in these uh, cities, you can imagine how difficult life could be for Christians who resisted involvement in these events or refused to go with their family or friends to worship at the emperor's temple could have been pretty pretty tough. You know, your friends invite you and they say, hey, we're going to the celebration of the emperor's birthday. Will you come? If you say no, how does that make you look? What, you don't love our emperor? What, you don't like our empire? Are you, are, are you disloyal? So this may be the main reason that Revelation is written to these seven churches in these particular cities. 
It's because they were feeling pressure to conform to the religious expectations of their society, including worshiping the emperor as a god, when Christians can only worship the true God as a God, and Jesus, his son, as Lord of all. And so this put Jesus and the emperor at odds with each other, and Christians in these seven cities were caught in the middle. Should they stay true to Jesus, even if it meant they could be ostracized, or maybe even killed for that? Or should they follow Jesus to the end? Should they should they deny Jesus and worship the emperor and all the other gods and be accepted in the community and survive? What should they do? So these Christians were really between a rock and a hard place. You know, no decision would leave them uh, unscathed. No, no decision would keep them out of trouble with one authority or the other, either the emperor or God. So what would they do? So we see hints of this struggle in Jesus' messages to each of the seven churches. In chapter 2 and verse 10, Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. So Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, they're going to suffer persecution for a while. Some of them will be put in prison. They'll be tested. But if they're faithful, even to death, Jesus will give them life as their victor's crown. Or some translations will say, Jesus will give them the crown of life. So they're suffering some kind of persecution, or it's coming. But Jesus will see them through it. Chapter 2, verse 13 Jesus says to the church in the city of Pergamum, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Antipas is not the only martyr mentioned in Revelation, not even close. There are quite a few uh, mentioned. Uh, most of them in the future tense, as if these, these people will be martyred in times to come, but some in the past tense. But he's the only one whose name we know, Antipas from Pergamum. We don't know why he was martyred, but when Jesus says that, he, that Antipas was his faithful witness, that makes it sound like Antipas was probably killed for his faith in Christ. And so again, we see that there's some kind of tension between uh, at least some parts of the community uh, some parts of society and Christians so that we can imagine Christians feeling pressured to conform to the standards and the ethics, the morals, and certainly the idolatry of their society. More generally, Jesus in these seven messages gives a lot of instruction on holding on to a pure faith and true obedience to God and on the need to turn away from sins that were probably prevalent in these communities. So in his messages to Pergamum and Thyatira, Jesus says that some believers are eating food sacrificed to idols, which means they're engaging in idolatry. They're um, eating food that's been sacrificed to an idol at a temple. And so they are trying to worship Christ. They're considering themselves Christians, but they also worship other gods as well. We call that syncretism, when you combine 
two or more religions and, and try to practice both at the same time or merge them into, into one, perhaps. And Jesus just will not accept that divided loyalty. So he calls these believers to repent. And I'm looking especially at chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, and verses 20 to 22. But in contrast to them, in Sardis, Jesus says there are a few people who have not soiled their clothes. Sounds like they had opportunity, maybe even reason to do so, but they have refused to do it. They are doing what pleases the Lord. They're holding to true obedience to God. And so we have some believers uh, who are leaning toward or maybe even moving into uh, behaviors that would um, show defiance, disobedience toward Christ. We have others who are holding to Christ uh, firmly and faithfully. So this sets up an important application for us today. What gods, in quotation marks, of our culture battle against Jesus for our devotion? I mean, these Christians in these seven uh, churches, or the churches in these seven cities, are dealing with literal gods of their culture and figurative ones as well. What gods of our culture battle against Jesus for our devotion? You know, some of the common gods of our culture are uh, just typical American values, right? Like career or family or materialism or um, adhering to a certain political party or certain social norms. So how do you feel pressured to show your support for these things? And if they were to push you to do what would displease the Lord, how would you deal with that? You know, would you would you give in? Would you resist? And if you resisted these ungodly pressures from our culture, what would that cost you? And if it does cost you, why do you still resist? What is it that you believe about God that makes resisting ungodly pressures and devoting yourself exclusively to God worthwhile? What is it you believe about God that makes that worthwhile? These are the kinds of questions that Revelation is going to deal with as it uh, continues on with this vision that Jesus gave to John. And we'll continue on, too, with more insights later to help us make sense of Revelation. Thanks for joining me today. Have a great day.